0: I'm Beth Bennett. This is How On Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. Coming up, I replay an interview from last year with Professor Michael Breed, an expert on bee biology. A topic especially germane this spring given the declines in pollinator populations. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
1: The COVID pandemic made college even more difficult than normal for students who couldn't go to class in person. And what if you are a professor teaching those students in an experimental physics class that requires hand-on experience, but everyone is remote? Well, how about recruiting those students for a massive project to study the sun from the comfort of their living rooms? That's exactly what about 1,000 students from the University of Colorado at Boulder did from 2020 to 2022 in a project led by Professor Heather Lewandowski and Dr. James Mason and colleagues. The goal of the project was to study one of the most puzzling questions about the sun. Why is the sun's outermost atmosphere, or corona, so hot? The temperature of the sun's corona is millions of degrees however the sun's surface called the photosphere is much cooler only thousands of degrees how does a cool surface heat a hot atmosphere as dr mason describes it it's like standing right in front of a campfire and as you back away it gets a lot hotter One theory is that coronal heating is caused by very small solar flares called nanoflares. Nanoflares, if they exist, are too small to be observed by telescopes, but would have to be extremely frequent and widespread across the sun, erupting like popcorn all over the surface. If so, Perhaps the energy of all those nanoflares could add up to make the corona that hot. The researchers give the example of boiling a pot of water using thousands of individual matches. To test this theory, the work was performed, essentially crowd-sourced, by a thousand mostly first- and second-year students who examined the timing and character of more than 600 normal solar flares which are gigantic eruptions of energy from the sun's corona. The flare data are from solar telescopes in space, which made the observations between 2011 and 2018. The researchers could infer details about the behavior of possible nanoflares by studying the physics of these larger flares. The students split into small groups, and each group analyzed a normal flare and added up how much heat each flare could inject into the sun's corona. The students' calculations painted a clear picture. The sum of the sun's possible nanoflares likely would not be powerful enough to heat up the corona to millions of degrees. Perhaps, as proposed by another theory, plasma waves in the sun's magnetic field carry energy from inside the sun to its atmosphere. Determining how this heating works on the sun can help scientists understand the underlying physical processes in other stars. The students worked an estimated total of 56,000 hours on the project over three semesters of the class. The paper is called Coronal Heating as Determined by the Solar Flare Frequency Distribution Obtained by Aggregating Case Studies. It appeared in a recent issue of the Astrophysical Journal, and the list of authors fills the first three pages of the article. For How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker.
2: A guerrilla group called Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia signed a peace treaty with the Colombian government in 2016. The land controlled by the rebels then fell into the hands of other groups who contributed to severe deforestation. In 2022, over 120,000 acres were deforested across Colombia, almost 10,000 more than the year before. But researchers from the Alliance of Bioversity International and the International Center for Tropical Agriculture say that, in spite of this disheartening change, they've discovered a way to promote peace between former rebels and local farmers that also helps the environment. In a paper published on May 17th in the journal PLUS Climate, researchers described holding workshops about sustainable land use systems in two different Colombian states. The scientists taught local farmers about sustainable agriculture and gave them seeds and funding. In return, the farmers had to conserve part of the forest. Cocoa agroforestry was their focus. Agroforestry is the practice of raising forests alongside other crops and even livestock. What surprised researchers was that their educational program sparked conversations within the entire community about climate mitigation. The value of the cocoa crop, the opportunity to create new jobs and specialties, and the desire of Colombians of different political backgrounds to solve climate issues seem to be building bridges. Surveys of almost 1,000 farmer households revealed that participants felt the agroforestry systems had opened up community dialogues and reduced disputes over access to natural resources. The researchers say the success of their program has caught the attention of other countries, including Kenya, which hopes to connect climate mitigation agricultural practices with peacemaking. For How on Earth, I'm Benita Lee.
0: Professor Mike Breed has been studying social insects, including ants and bees, at the University of Colorado here in Boulder for decades. I spoke with him last year about the fascinating biology of these important pollinators in an interview that is still timely because the many problems facing honeybees and other bees are continuing to mount. He describes the challenges these important insects face in the modern world and what we can do to protect them. Welcome to the show, Mike. It's always a treat to talk to you about honeybees.
3: It's nice to be here.
0: And other bees as well, of course. So we can you know, include some of the many other bees that people see around Colorado. But let's start off talking about honeybees. I haven't seen a lot of them lately. A lot of people in my neighborhood have bee-friendly plants. What's your take on the status of honeybees these days?
3: I, I think they're still very much imperiled. People who manage them responsibly in hives can keep them going, but uh, you do see far fewer bees, and not not just honeybees, but many kinds of bees. You just don't see as much anymore. You know, for, for honeybees specifically, it's uh, the same threats that people have talked about for a long while. One is changes in land use. Uh, another is diseases and parasites that they're impacted by. And I think on top of that, recently kind of widespread use of new classes of insecticides have impacted them quite a lot.
0: Right. So are you thinking specifically of neonics?
3: Yeah, yeah. Specifically neonicotinoids. And I I think, you know, one point I just try to make to people is there there's no Utility to using those things in suburban or urban mm-hmm. landscapes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just—it's just not justified, and the downstream consequences seem to be pretty huge.
0: What exactly do they do to the bees?
3: Well, we we don't exactly know. You know, there are studies that have shown impacts on uh, things like learning, orientation. You know, mm-hmm. how they know where they're flying. Uh, but, and we don't, you know, it's not like we have really solid data that says, oh, it's the neonics that are the source of the problem, but there's this accumulation of circumstantial data, mm-hmm. uh, which just suggests that the, those insecticides have persistent effects.
0: Right, and I know I try to buy plants from local greenhouses that don't use those. Is there are there other things that people can do to try to prevent, you know, using them or spreading them around the local environment?
3: Uh, no, I think. Well, the most important thing is to just not not go to the garden store and buy insecticides. Um, they're very rarely implicated in. Um, the, you know in people's gardens there's there's other approaches and something's really out of hand use an insecticide which uh, is known to be very short lasting doesn't persist in the environment
0: okay so one thing you just said is really interesting I've had a that is about the the learning capabilities of honeybees because I've mm-hmm. had a few conversations lately with friends that yeah. were completely amazed when I explained to them some of the remarkable things honeybees can do in terms of communicating what they've learned and and just their learning ability so talk a little bit about that because it's so cool what they can do
3: the the ability of honeybees to get all kinds of information from their environment and assemble that and act appropriately is just we I think in the past probably didn't credit insects enough with the ability to do that. so there there have been some recent studies that have gotten uh, a lot of attention from the press uh, about honeybees being able to uh, to use counting skills mm-hmm. to uh, to solve problems, which is pretty incredible. I, I'm pausing here because it's really a large. Uh, a, a large question there's there's a new book out by a scientist named Lars Chitka talks in incredible detail about learning memory and cognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the feats that they can accomplish are just incredible and and it's what one, one really interesting thing to me about insect societies is you don't have there's no individual in the background, Absorbing all the information and directing every animal what to do uh, each animal is just responding to the cues in its immediate environment but the, their ability to respond in very sophisticated ways to those cues is what's so so astounding
0: and it's been gosh close to a century now since the Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of their their basic dance form of communication. Yeah and i still tell people about it that haven't heard about it and that's a little <laughs> surprising to me but i guess you know in the when you're immersed in the world of animal behavior you think everybody knows all these cool stories oh, but sure. you don't really know all these cool stories yeah. so could you just encapsulate that one really briefly because that's a very wonderful story too
3: when, when a bee leaves the hive to search for uh for flowers for food to eat if it finds a good patch of flowers then it'll collect some, but when it returns to the hive, it dances. The dances contain a lot of information about the location of, of that food. They the bees encode the distance to the food, the direction to the food, and uh, something about the quality of the food.
0: So amazing given the I know you we you recall when we first met, we were dissecting honeybee brains. We know how little yeah. those brains are. They yeah. can they can do a lot of processing right. and memory storage. Right. But what about some of the solitary bees? I have noticed that there's fewer bumblebees around this year, which yeah. makes me very sad.
3: Right. Yeah, I've I've noticed in in my yard far fewer bumblebees over the last few years and just Solitary bees in general have kind of disappeared from the landscape. So it, it, at this point, if I see a bee in our in my yard, it's likely to be a honeybee, mm-hmm. but it's likely from a, a managed colony. There's mm-hmm. several people in my neighborhood who who have colonies, and uh, we don't really know why uh, there seems to be such a, a a startling disappearance of other kinds of bees, uh, but you know, certainly circumstantial evidence of points to the neonic.
0: And can you speculate about the effect of the disappearance of those non-honeybee species, the native species on the environment here in Colorado? Well,
3: it's it's loss of pollinators. Mm -hmm. And there's some plants out there where honeybees work just fine. There there are other plants that are uh, native plants that are co-adapted with uh, specific native pollinators, and when the native pollinators are gone, then pollination fails, and so it, you know it, it can be a big thing. And we you know really need to, some good studies that assess uh, how these systems are paying out for for both the bees and the plants they pollinate.
0: Yeah, it's kind of that domino effect that when you take out one species, then you start taking out all the other in the web around it. But I'm a little hopeful because, you know, just during that one year of shutdown with COVID, so many things seem to rebound. So I'm guardedly hopeful that maybe we can Uh have that same effect. So any other cool things about bees that you want to talk about? I mean, there's so many things that it's hard to know
3: where to begin boy there is in the honeybee world the idea that uh that honeybees might be on some level cognitive is gaining uh, a lot more acceptance right now Mm -hmm. and we we don't really know how far that extends you know there's been uh, been an argument made for perception of fear and pain by honeybees. And, uh, you know, that sort of extends our concept of the cognitive realm of animals to include species that we wouldn't have thought would be cognitive.
0: And that seems completely reasonable to me. I mean, it's not so long since we, many of us, didn't accept that other mammals had cognitive mm-hmm. abilities and emotions similar yeah. to ours. And their yeah. our brains are structured like ours. So, in critters that have brains that are structured very differently, like I was surprised to learn that the structure of bird brains is very different than ours. They can pack a lot more information to a much smaller uh-huh. um, size skull, which makes sense because they've been selected to be light because they fly. Yeah. I think flying insects similarly have been selected to be really light and efficient. So, that That all makes sense to me. And I I love that idea because they seem like not little flying automatons. They seem like, (laughs) you know, little creatures that are processing information in a very rational sense.
3: Yes. Yeah. And, and very smart about it.
0: Right. But they also do things that are so foreign to us, like, um, the story of when the young Queens emerge. In the spring, and they just duke it out, and you know all yeah. the sisters kill each other. So, yeah, maybe just talk about that a little bit because that's kind that, of a wild story. Uh,
3: so, so in, in the in the spring, um, an established honeybee colony raises somewhere, typically in the range of five to maybe fifteen new queens. Okay, and they're the, within the hive. They're very distinctive because they have. Uh, special cells made of wax that are built in which the queen larvae are are reared. Um, So you can can just open a hive and look and see how many queens are being reared. In the end, the objective for the bees is for the old queen to leave with a swarm. Okay, so she takes half the workers and go finds a new place to live. And then one of the new queens takes over. And uh, it's that, that process of winnowing down from many new queens to, to only one that's, that's fascinating. Uh, you know, Sometimes uh, the new queen that comes out first just goes around and destroys the cells in which the others are being reared. But other times you get more than one new queen coming out and they do fight to the death so you end up with one one queen in the colony
0: and this is a really interesting phenomenon because we think about fights to the death usually being in males in species uh-huh. fighting over females but yeah. I mean, clearly these females are fighting over resources cuz the hive right. will only really keep one of the queens yeah. but yeah. it's it's just an interesting thing that that it, happens here it, it yeah. is
3: yeah yeah and it's, it's so when you, when you see a swarm of bees um, in the spring, uh, likely you're seeing a, a queen that's a, a year or, or more old with, with a lot of workers. And if you traced back to the, the hive where they'd come from, you'd find a new queen or multiple new queens uh, duking it out. Now, w- Once the identity of the new queen's established, then she flies out to mate. And she'll mate eight, 10, maybe 15 times in the span of a few days, store all of the semen from those matings. And then she doesn't mate again in her entire lifetime. She may live up to five or six years and laying literally hundreds of thousands of eggs uh, using semen stored from those very few matings early in her life.
0: So these queens the the term is actually a little misleading to people because we tend to think of queen as a very regal honored um, yeah. persona but in the honeybee hive like in many other insects that have these reproductive females right. she's just a big egg laying machine.
3: Right exactly yeah yeah everybody in the society has a role uh, evolution has shaped how they perform their roles and that yeah comes Back to that point that they, uh, the the there's no omniscient director just being in charge and telling everybody what to do, which um,
0: makes them even more remarkable that there isn't that they're all just working it out on some preordained, mm-hmm. selected program. Yeah. So in the in in um, beekeeping in the beekeeping world. Mm-hmm. Will those multiple queens be collected and um, used for? Yeah.
3: So people who rear uh, bees for as a business, so they uh, make artificial swarms to sell to people who want to keep bees. Will set up special hives where they give the the bees the opportunity to rear a lot of queens, and then um, put as the individual queens uh, mature, they'll. Um, they'll put them in what's called a, a nucleus, a small colony. And she'll fly out from the, from there to mate. And then they can take the mated queens and sell them with um, artificial swarms.
0: Oh, they actually let them fly out and mate. They don't artificially inseminate them.
3: You can artificially inseminate bees, but um, uh, to get a queen that's going to be a good layer for a long sure. time, Natural mating is really better.
0: I, yeah, yeah. Well, so as long as we're talking about mating, I guess we should tell people about the situation of males in honeybees because this oh, is a yeah. cool story too.
3: <laughs> oh, well, the, the males are produced in the spring also um, because they need to be around at the same time as the uh, as the queens. And uh, they fly out from their, their colony. And there, there are... Spots where the males we call them drones. The drones tend to aggregate, so you may see hundreds of drones flying in a in a certain location. And we actually those seem to be the same more or less from year to year. But we don't know what causes the drones. Um, you know, be able to establish the it's different animals. From year to year, what causes them to be able to establish in the same spot? Some people think it has something to do with the Earth's geomagnetic field. That there are certain points of geomagnetic reference that they just use to uh, to congregate. But uh, so you imagine hundreds of drones um, uh, milling around in the in the air. You know, sometimes fifty or hundred yards up in the air, and the queen looking to, to mate flies in, into that cloud of drones. Uh, and then it's just chaos because the the, the drones are all trying to, to get to the queen first. Uh, when a drone, drone does manage to mate with the queen, uh, they lock genitals. Uh, then the, uh, uh, once mating is done, the drone's genitals rip out of the male. So he's done. He's not not going to mate again, and uh, generally, the drones don't survive long after yeah.
0: that. And evolution has shaped them to do this because their hope, you know, speaking teleologically, mm-hmm. is that the presence of that mass of tissue in the female reproductive tract will block any other males from getting at her. But of course, yeah. the females have counter-interests and they've evolved mechanisms. I don't know, know what, they must have some kind of muscular system that ejects that.
3: Oh, she actually just lands somewhere, reaches wow. around with her mouth okay. Okay. and um, pulls it out.
0: And then she flies off and mates with another male. Off. Yeah. And you said she mates with 10 or 15 males and so she can store a lot of sperm because each sperm yeah. sac must contain millions of yeah and then she can store that for years
3: mm-hmm. yeah which is pretty incredible yeah. because it, it's not like she has a deep freezer right, right. in her abdomen uh, so that uh, that semen is stored at you know kind of normal outdoor temperatures mm-hmm. somehow the the sperm survives just for years
0: yeah they're they're just amazing animals well, Mike, it's always a pleasure to talk to you about bees. So hopefully we'll do this again in a couple of years and give people some, some more bee stories. But thanks for, uh, for taking the time to talk. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Beth. That was Professor Mike Breed talking about honeybee biology and their conservation. You can find out more about the plants they thrive on at the CSU Extension website. I'll provide a link to their extensive list of plants that support pollinators on the show website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our whole crew is juggling the executive producer slot right now, and I produce this week's show. Headlines, thanks to Benita Lee and Joel Parker. Engineering by Shannon Young. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from The Flight of the Bumblebee by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter